The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Our show is about biometrics, and that's the study of some part of our body that's used to identify us, whether it's our fingerprint, our iris scan, our retina scan, or facial scan. This is really, you know, 1984 stuff, but it's it's very, very important because that's the way we're going because your social security number really isn't truly your identity. And we're trying to see other ways that we can identify a person for various reasons that we're going to talk about with this wonderful professor. We're going to be speaking with Lisa S. Nelson, who is a JD and a PhD, and she is actually, she holds both of those from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and I have to tell you, Lisa, that I also went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison as an undergrad. Did you? Yes, I did. So we're both old badgers. Yeah. <laughs> and let me tell a little bit more about you. She's She has recently finished serving as co-principal investigator on a National Science Foundation grant to explore the societal perceptions of biometric technology. And that whole research that she did in collaboration with others is published in a great book that I have right in front of me called America Identified Biometric Technology and Society by Lisa Nelson. And this is a fascinating book. Um, also, Lisa is currently an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public and International Affairs and a fellow at the Philosophy of Science Center and an affiliated faculty member of the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. So we are so thrilled to have you join us. Thank you so much, Lisa. Yes, thank you for having me. So what got you into the study of biometrics? Well, um, I had, uh, as you mentioned, I have a law degree and a Ph.D. in political science, so I've always been interested in law and, and interested particularly in constitutional issues and challenges to, con- to the Constitution. And one of the obvious ones, particularly after September 11th, was how we were going to try to balance the imperative for security that came out of September 11th with ongoing protections, constitutional protections, as well as statutory protections for civil rights and liberties. And so my interest trended toward information technology, and I ended up meeting my my future colleagues, uh, some of whom were at the uh, West Virginia University, 
and they were biometric engineers, and they uh, invited me to be part of a proposal to the National Science Foundation. And uh, I agreed, <laughs> and we were funded, ultimately. Oh, that is really wonderful. Tell us about the scope of this study and, and kind of how you put this all together and just all about the methodology. Okay. Well, I first started out by trying to run a, a pilot survey, which was only 100 people, and just to test out some of the questions and, and get a sense of the context of the study, because I, I didn't want to just study biometric technology out of context. I thought it was important to put it in the context of other information uh, technologies, but, but also other personal identifiers, because as you mentioned, with the Social Security number and driver's license, we, we've long used identifiers in, in um, American society and, and elsewhere. And I wanted to try to, to put it biometric identifiers in that context, as well as consider uh, various institutional uses, uh, so that I wasn't thinking about the isolation of biometric technology, but how the uh, how it would eventually be used and what for what purposes. Right. And uh, after the 100-person pilot, I um, did focus groups, and there were a total of nine focus groups, some of non-users of biometric technology or potential users, I suppose, and some of end-users, users, people who had used either one or a variety of uh, types of biometric technology. And in the, the context of those focus groups, uh, tried to get a better sense of the concerns and the, the issues that, are, that were arising with biometric technology and the perceptions of biometric technology. Some, you know, were, were accurate, some others were not, but um, as I say in my book, it's important to take societal perception seriously as a marker for policy. And then from there, uh, the national survey was done, and that was a, a thousand-person random digit dial survey. Wow. So, so tell us about some of the types of questions that you asked and what kind of answers you got. Well, as I mentioned, I wanted to put it in context. So I started out uh, trying to ask people about um, what kinds of issues arose, not just with biometric identifiers, but how confident they felt in other various types of, of personal identifiers, whether it be a mother's maiden name, driver's license, social security number, um, and tried to gauge the, the level of confidence that they had in those identifiers and then to then weigh that against some of the new, uh, or the, some the, not the newer biometric technologies, but some of the mu- newer uh, biometric identifiers uh, and, and older ones, including fingerprinting. And how familiar were they with the biometric, different technologies and bi- using biometrics? Well, it was surprising to me, actually, in the in the focus groups, particularly that people, if they even if they, had, first of all, a lot of people had been exposed to biometric uh, identifiers, and if they haven't or they hadn't, they had a you know pretty good understanding of what they were, just from some of the TV shows, or right. the, you know, depictions. CSI, of, yeah, yes, right. Uh, so it wasn't a stretch. I mean, people were fairly well versed in what what was captured in terms of you know um, iris scans or, or had some understanding of some of the concerns. Some and again, some were erroneous concerns. Some were educated concerns, but. Um, they, they, in general, nobody said, I don't even understand what it is. Right. You know, people had a, a general idea of what it was. Mm-hmm. So what, was there anything really surprising that you learned? I, I was surprised to find uh, that people were more accepting of biometric identifiers than I had originally thought. Um, and 
we're accepting, but with a lot of traditional concerns about civil liberties and rights. And why that tended to be a surprise to me is because a lot of the privacy advocates in the post-September 11th um, time period were really arguing or cautioning against uh, taking the American public I don't want to say seriously, but taking them at their word, and they were afraid that they were just engaged in a mob mentality about security and fighting terrorism, and that you know anything to enhance security would be acceptable, even if it was um, going to trounce on civil liberties and, and rights. And I found that that people were very measured about it, accepting of it, understanding of it, but also wanting to put it in the, the traditional concerns that they had about preserving their rights and liberties. And, and what kinds of concerns did they have? Did they, think, did they really get the idea about false positives and false negatives? Let's talk a little bit about that. Yes, I think a lot, uh, the concerns um, that, that sort of broke down into technological failure, but also then potentially misuse of the biometric identifiers, so that if you... Um, if, if you were to be falsely identified, they were concerned about the, the procedural issues that would arise, or how would you how would you correct misinformation? What would you do if your biometric were stole, was stolen? Um, how would you handle those kinds of issues? And if if um, in, in in addition to those technological fa- failures, they were worried about it as um, a, a means of generalized surveillance. We mentioned Orwell. In the, in the beginning, and people have that in the back of their mind. They, they didn't like the idea of using biometric um, identifiers or, uh, say, facial scanning technology if they were just going to a football game and everybody was going to have to be scanned or um, in those generalizable moments or in uh, also re- uh, really thinking about it as a, a way to identify them on a... Um, an, on a basis that they weren't aware of, made them uncomfortable. Right. So what were really the most important values or expectations that they had with with regard to personal identifiers when you compared, like, the mother's maiden name and the social security number? You know, more and more people are hearing about identity theft and that the key identifier is the social security number. So um, what were the most important values? Were they worried about identity theft? What were they worried about? Yes, definitely people are, are worried about those things that they can't control for. Um, so that they're worried about identity theft, they're worried about uh, the possibility of another terrorist attack, they're worried about the safety on the airplane, they're worried about the, the uh, safety at the border. They're, they're worried about, you know, they were more willing to allow for biometric identification if you're going um, into a governmental building or in a, into a courthouse or something that that had a specific... And, and definable purpose that they themselves wouldn't be able to manage um, or wouldn't be able to uh, fend, fend off. Do you think that the people that you interviewed saw that there was really an either-or proposition with privacy or security? Did they no, see it like no. that? No, that, and that was the interesting thing is that that, um, that had been my assumption because that's how we tend to talk about it or, or people who are concerned about Privacy tend to see it as a um, an either or proposition, and, and I think that uh, that they were aware of that it's, uh, the fact that it's not necessarily a trade off, but it's it's um, 
it's it's a context of use and and also I think it was important to find that people have different conceptions of privacy as they become more and more engaged in using personal information as a currency, not just for security, but for uh, interactions, for communication, for social network. I mean, this idea of privacy that, that we tend to bring to the table as an absolute just doesn't really translate well into the way we, we are tending toward using our personal information, not just for security enhancement, but for a whole host of other things, which tends to, to change the nature of privacy. Right. You know, and I'm thinking, Lisa, maybe we should get your definition of privacy in the information age. We've talked about it so much on this show for the past five years. We've talked about it. So let's hear how you defined or did you define privacy for them when you were interviewing them or did you kind of let them define it? Yeah, no, I I let them define it in terms of the kinds of concerns and um, issues that they had. And so if I if I were pressed to say what privacy is in relationship to personal information. I mean, setting aside what privacy means in, in terms of the Fourth Amendment, let's say, um, I, I would say that, that privacy in personal information has, has uh, to be almost modified to um, or translated into how we protect that information. So it's not even about keeping it private. It's not about keeping it um, to ourselves anymore. I think it's a, thinking about it in terms of how to keep that information protected as we want to use it for uh, the currency of our interactions. Right. Lots of times we talk about it on this show as the privacy in the information age, or at least information privacy, privacy is the right to control that information. Yes. Who gets it, how long they get to have it, what they do with it, you know, how, who gets access to it. It's, you know, it's kind of all those things. It's how do you protect it? And it goes even further than that. Yes. So um, tell me then, with that understanding, um, did did they want to have the right to um, consent first? Or what, what was, was there an opt-in, opt-out kind of thought that, that they had about using their biometrics? Well, this is one of the really interesting things that I didn't expect to find, which is that we, we tend to think and we tend to associate consent with the preservation of liberty. I mean, that's just a basic principle that comes from John Stuart Mill, you know, that you don't, you don't impinge anyone's, uh, on anybody, anyone's liberty to act or to make the choices that they feel um, that, they, that are in their best interest. And so we, we tend to see any... Um, we tend to see consent as a preservation of liberty and have translated that into the information age. So we, we say the best way to protect your privacy or the liberty interest in privacy is to require consent at every turn. But I uh, found that in certain circumstances, people were not either not uh, felt like they were well prepared to make a decision about every potential use of their personal information, and, and I'm talking about, um, you know, if it's for the purposes of, of dealing with a commonly shared problem like identity theft or terrorism or protecting air, airplanes or protecting the border, that, um, that in some instances either consent was 
contradictory to a more generalizable preservation of liberty for society or that they felt inadequately prepared to know every potential danger that they faced. Right. And so that so the that it wouldn't be even really informed consent because they weren't informed enough no, about exactly. how it might be used. <laughs> Which is a really interesting thing because consent figures so prominently in the way that we talk about preservation of our rights and personal information. And I'm not convinced that's, that is the be and uh, I don't think that's the only way that, that it can be preserved. You know, it's... I think it's hard for people to have um, any idea of how that information might be used mm-hmm. to hurt them, for example, right. or or they they are kind of thinking, well, if they need it, then let's give it to them and for whatever they need to use it for. And I think they're probably right that they don't understand enough or they don't understand the ramifications enough mm-hmm. to really decide sometimes whether there's consent. Maybe there's too much choice. I recently went to the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and we spend a lot of time on choice, and too much choice for consumers mm-hmm. paralyzes them. Yes. <laughs> and, and, right. and me, too. If I have to look at all the different health care, um, you know, health insurance, which I want to change now, it drives me nuts because it, it, it's just so confusing. Yes. And I, and I think that may be part of it, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you found that at all, but it, it may be just overwhelming. Yes, no, and I think, I think that's, that's right, especially as, as I said, as we, cont- we continue to expand the uses of our personal information. Right. You know, that becomes a question of um, the, the trust and confidence that we have in the institutions that are, being, that are using the personal information more than um, relying on the individual as the gatekeeper. Right. We are speaking with Dr. Lisa Nelson, who has a JD and PhD from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which I have to say this because we're fellow Badgers living where it used to get 40 below zero. When I walked up Bascom Hill, I remember that. I don't know if it was like that when you were there. Oh, yeah. It was cold. It was yeah. very, very cold. And I know. It was horrible, actually. And now I live in California, and you know why. <laughs> yeah. I wish I were a little bit further west. <laughs> yes, yes. And she is also the author of this book that is really the, you know, the outcome of this wonderful research that she did on biometrics, and it's called America Identified, Biometric Technology and Society by Lisa S. Nelson. And it has this eerie eye looking at you like it's a retina scan or a, or an iris scan, something, you know, that reminds me of Minority Report, mm-hmm. you know. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about the anonymity factor in the use of biometric technologies. Yes. Uh, you know, what about people wanting to remain anonymous or not remain anonymous? What What did you find out about that? Yes, I mean, that, that varies, too, according to the situational use and also the institutional use. So as I mentioned, if, um, if it came down to, in, in, as you might remember, this was tried in a couple of instances, not very successfully, where they were using facial skin technology at a um, professional football game. I think it was the Super Bowl. Right, um, right. They were outraged. Yes, people did not, did not like that type of use of biometric technology because it was too all-encompassing, and it was... It was, um, and I it think, wasn't transparent either. No, that's right. Uh, yes, transparency tends to be a, a concern in terms of um, allowing for people some decisional autonomy to preserve, you know, their anonymity or, or not. So, generalizable surveillance is something that that tends to get um, 
people more concerned about the loss of anonymity um, and and also the ability to connect pieces of information also tend to get people a little bit concerned about, um, you know, for instance, uh, the possibility of a, a national identification card that would serve a, a variety of purposes uh, is, is of concern because then, then you can start to connect the financial transactions and communications and so, a, a range of, of things that would give too much information about what their day-to-day activity is like. I, I think it comes down to trying to preserve some element of liberty in, in a civil society that is being built, you know, on, on the the grounds of information technology. Yeah, they don't realize that total information awareness is already out there, that there's these huge profiles about us, even without, I mean, not that I like the idea of of what they want to do with the national ID card. However, it's already, I mean, that kind of dossiers on us already exist and and Axiom and and all these information brokers already have these profiles about us. And that's what's, I think that's the huge, most huge issue is the transparency issue. Now, was that something that that they talked about at all with this is, you know, like having somebody look at their eyes without them even knowing it? You know what I mean? Like yes. capturing no, that that is a concern. But again, it, it, it also has to be weighed against what the purpose is for, for the use of that biometric identifier. So uh, I think people like to know when it's happening and they like to know how it's happening, <laughs> you know, the, the, the generalizable surveillance is something that they're not uh, very comfortable with. But um, the use of the biometric identifier for particular policy goals or institutional uses tends to be more favorably accepted. Right. I think, you know, if, if those of us who grew up with Star Trek remember when there was the iris scan, you know, uh, Captain Kirk would go up and they'd read his eye and then he could open the door. Yes. But, but that was real transparent. Yes. Exactly. You know, it, yes. it isn't like somebody beams something at your eye and then they can see into your eye without you even knowing it. Yes. You know? Right, right. So what um, what does tend to create trust and confidence and, you know, in institutions? Well, I, I found that there was a, a greater amount of trust and confidence in those institutions that had a very narrow policy purpose. So um, if it were uh, the IRS uh, people and it was being used for uh, a particular purpose and only for that purpose, there was a greater institutional trust and confidence. Also, uh, probably more importantly, there was a a very significant um, increase in trust and confidence with those institutions like medical providers, um, where they they tended to see um, the presence of HIPAA, and and I I say that as a caveat because I I know HIPAA, and you probably are aware aware and and maybe think the same thing, that there are a lot, there are many um, potential avenues for sharing information within HIPAA. So it's yes. not, it is not a safeguard that the people tend to think it is in, in all respects. But um, the presence of the law and, and some um, procedural protections for their information tend to enhance the, the trust and confidence that people have in any particular institution. And the medical institutions or medical providers tended to rate highest um, as well as a narrow purpose defined for the use of the biometric identifiers. 
You know, it's so funny because I'm just wondering how that is changing when we have all of this information about security breaches yes. with, uh, you know, with uh, higher, uh, insti- you know, with a lot of healthcare agencies, yes. doctor's offices, and of course, hospitals. And we just, you know, we just heard about these huge data breaches with, you know, HealthNet and, you know, there's yes. just, they're all over the place. So, I mean, I think that's kind of interesting. Maybe they don't understand it or they don't get it or they didn't get their privacy notice, yes. but, you know, or, or even the IRS. I mean, we've had problems with the IRS with yeah. the identity theft. So, it's, but, but um, I think that the, the presence of the law, particularly with re- regard to HIPAA, gives them a sense that uh, there's some recourse I have. Right. You know, and, and again, whether that's misplaced or um, right. maybe not well informed is another issue altogether. Right. Because at some level, taking them at their own word is to say that the law generates the kind of trust that, that we don't have in inner, you want to try to recreate trust in an institution that you have in an interpersonal relationship, right? So that right. Um, part of what the law does is bridge that gap between, you know, the bureaucratic institution and, and what people want out of it, some reliance on it. Right. And and we always think, I mean, in the past, I mean, all of us would trust our doctor and, you know, you know, the Hippocratic Oath and all that stuff that they would protect us. I mean, I do think that things are, are changing and evolving, yes. but I, I think it makes a lot of sense. We don't have a lot of time. Why don't you just tell us what um, what conclusion you found from this study? Uh, you know, basically, if you could say there is one really major um, learning experience from this this study that you did. I, I think the, the most important thing that I took away from it and that, that will probably inform my research going forward is that as we trend toward the use of information technology that the, um, the end user, no matter what you know, the technology is uh, and the values and the expectations and the norms that, that they have and that we have as a society, have to um, be, be, number one, preserved and then also um, taken seriously from the perspective of of the individuals who have to give up their information in order for, you know, the information age to even um, exist. And so thinking about, um, as we develop technologies, thinking about how to use these kinds of societal perceptions to inform not only the regulation of technology, but even the development of it. Right, and hopefully we'll do what they call privacy by design and institute into the technology itself privacy protections is is integral to the entire product or services that are that are going to be implemented with biometrics yes so thank you so much dr nelson thank you for having me yeah we really appreciate we will make sure that people take a look at your your new book by lisa s nelson america identified biometric technology and society and we will have to have you back again with your next research okay Okay. (laughs) all right thank you lisa thank you all right you've been listening to kuci 88.9 fm in irvine and kuci.org on the net i'm mari frank join us every monday morning at 8 a.m and visit our website at kuci.org slash privacy piracy there you can see our upcoming guests their bios link to their websites and of course listen to archived interviews and download podcasts Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.